Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, a WABE special, the interview with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. Some of the biggest lessons I've learned about leadership came during that process. One... I realized that council never knew what it felt like not to have the support of the mayor. That conversation in just a moment, but first this from our WABE newsroom. Many of those public health regulations to slow the spread of the coronavirus in Georgia, well, they're now expired. Governor Brian Kemp recently signed an executive order to roll back the restrictions as the state's virus caseload count has declined. As for Kemp's latest executive order, it lifts restrictions for child care centers, bars, restaurants, convention centers, and performance venues. Many of those rules regarding masks, temperature checks, and disinfecting have been in place for more than a year. Some regulations for long-term care facilities and schools, however, remain in place. But the executive order prevents public schools from using the state of public health emergency to justify mandating face masks. However, it doesn't ban the districts from doing so. Case counts in Georgia haven't been this low since April of last year. In related news, about 14% of Georgians speak a language other than English, according to census estimates. This can create a barrier to accessing the COVID-19 vaccine. So local advocates want to make sure immigrants know how. A new report by Metro Atlanta organizations has recommendations on how to reduce hesitancy and confusion about the vaccine among immigrants and other communities. Those recommendations include reducing law enforcement at some vaccination sites, reminding people that the vaccine is free, and having multilingual staff to answer questions. Another suggestion is to limit unnecessary technical or medical terms in outreach. According to the State Department of Public Health, 33% of Georgians are considered fully vaccinated, and nearly 40% have at least one dose. Up next, that conversation with Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Keisha Lance Bottoms is Atlanta's 60th mayor and just the second black woman ever elected to lead the city. The expectation is Atlanta mayors serve two terms. But recently on the night of May 6, Bottoms released this video message to the city. As Derek and I have given thoughtful prayer and consideration to the season now before us, it is with deep emotions that I hold my head high and I choose not to seek another term as mayor. In her first full-length interview since making the announcement, Mayor Bottoms talks about her first and what appears will be her only term as mayor. Our conversation takes place on Atlanta's southwest side along a park trail in Cascade Springs Nature Preserve. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Um, this is a different place for us. It beats the studio, right? Uh, well, yeah, I think it does. <laughs> you have a pretty nice studio, though. Yes, we do. And it's air conditioned. Yes. <laughs> Let's go back to December 6th. A little bit after midnight, 2017, mm. and uh, you, along with your family and supporters, and you talk a lot about Atlanta. We did it, Atlanta. I love Atlanta. Yeah. When you think back to that night and what you had accomplished, what goes through your mind? Gosh, that seems like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Um, it was an out-of-body experience that night. 
I remember standing on stage and thinking I'd never had that feeling before. I felt like I was floating above the people. It was very surreal. And I didn't know what was, what was next. That was, and you remember, you covered it. It was such a long, difficult, ugly race mm -hmm. that I didn't even think about a transition. All I could think about was winning. And um, I remember my husband <laughs> making a joke with me. He's like, yeah, you caught the bump out of that school bus, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, like the dog chasing yeah. the school bus and then you gotta figure out what to do with it. And, uh, you know, it just, things just happened so quickly. The runoff was only about two and a half weeks before yeah. I was sworn in. And I remember even being inside City Hall working on, on the transition and someone saying, you know, oh, by the way, you got to plan the inauguration. Yeah. And I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> I got to do what? And so anyway, it just, it took off from there. And one of the first big pieces of legislation that we went through with was the elimination of cash bail bonds mm -hmm. and then we ended the relationship with ICE and mm -hmm. um, the agenda really started to take shape because we had made the one billion dollar commitment to affordable housing and what became very clear to me very quickly is there were a lot of siloed conversations on any number of things but affordable housing was a big one. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the respective entities from the Atlanta Housing Authority to MARTA to even our city planning office, we had all never sat in one room together to talk about affordable housing in the city. And so for the first time, we convened that group and then, oh, oh by the way, three months in, there was a cyber attack mm -hmm. that took down our systems, uh, biggest ransomware attack in municipal history. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was the federal investigation that lingered from the last administration. And so it was, uh, it, that first year in so many ways is a blur, uh, because in addition to that, you're, you're trying to transition the government and you're trying to make sure you have the right leaders in place. And uh, Did you have the right leaders in place? Or at the time you thought you had the right leaders in place? I did when I walked in the door, because I worked with so many of these people during my eight years on city council. But every leader has a different style, and I don't think my style could be any different than my predecessor's style. It's a complete 180. So even people who perhaps may have been solid leaders in their own right weren't necessarily the right leaders for me. Um, but you kept them charge. on. There was not a single person that I moved out after that 100 days that I didn't know, probably day two or three, that I needed to move them out. Um, and even there were still some, you know, that I probably should have moved out sooner. But um, I finally, and it's interesting as I've announced that I'm not running, I finally feel like I have a, the team in place that's Right for in me. year four of your first and only term, now you feel like you have that team in place. And I had heard that, that it would really take four years to get a team in place, and I thought, no way. But with every person you move out, um, you know, a, another plug begins to leak and you, you realize where your strengths and your weaknesses are. And, and that's probably not any different from any leader of any organization, but the difference is when you're leading a, a government and Atlanta, everybody's watching Atlanta, not just in the state of Georgia, globally people are paying attention to us. Every move that you make and every decision you make um, is, is for public consumption. As you move people, did you have conversations? Because I imagine some of these folks you had a friendship with too. Yeah, it was really tough. I quickly realized you run for office, you win in a popularity contest. 
Nobody really knows if you can run anything, and the vast majority of elected officials haven't run large organizations. I'm a lawyer by trade. Barack Obama's a yeah. lawyer. So lawyers often work by themselves, and we close the door and we open up books. And so we, a lot of attorneys like myself, we're more introverted. We mask as extroverts, but we're more introverted. But when you're running an organization, uh, it's a skill set. Did you seek advice about what this was, what this job of being mayor of Atlanta was going to be like from former mayors, from Mayor Franklin? I know you have a very good relationship with Ambassador Young, yeah. your predecessor. Yeah, but you know, so the, the is short that a, answer... Is that a no-no? Is that something that mayor, no. incoming mayors don't do? The, the short answer is yes. I, I talk to every living former mayor. The thing, again, that's interesting, for as much as I think that I know, uh, in four years, in eight years, everything will change about our lives. So even in talking to other mayors, things change significantly. If you, you go back to 2010, when I ran for office for city council or, or 09, mm -hmm. social media wasn't even that big. Yeah. And now social media dominates so much of our discussions and, and how we get information. So things change quickly. Putting the job into context was extremely helpful and continues to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Talking um, with, with people, not just in Atlanta, but across the country who've done it. But it still takes assessing where you are here and now. So you take the last year, for example. There's nobody who can talk to you There's about- There's no handbook for a pandemic. No handbook for a pandemic, no handbook for a social justice movement. Um, so it, it, it was helpful in ways, but at some point I had to give myself permission. And I remember thinking every new mayor is a new mayor. You're not the first one who's been new to this job. So it gave me permission to be a, a bit more forgiving of myself for what I didn't know and, and the things that I um, struggled with. How would you assess your relationship with city council? You were a former council member, so you know what that pull and tug yeah. is like with the mayor. Yeah, it's it contentious is, at times in the public. This is a different city council. Um, the city council that I served on, and I can even just give myself as an example, even when I was not friendly with the previous administration, if the policy was good, I supported the policy. Mm -hmm. Even when I didn't support the person. Um, this city council is different. Um, it's, um, and I, I remember talking to a mayor and I was asking, what do you do when you, you don't have the, the votes on council? And they said, I never not had council. So I'm the first mayor in a very long time. I would imagine maybe Mayor, mayor Franklin, but it's, um, it's a very different dynamic. And again, I don't think it's specific to Atlanta. I think it's just a, a different dynamic across the country. There are factions that will, will buck what they perceive to be the establishment for the sake of mm -hmm. just pushing back. Well, the Gulch, for example. The Gulch is a great example. And I remember watching a city council meeting where you came in and you went one by one and you laid out what you had done for each city council member and you wanted them to, to, vote, mm -hmm. on, to vote yes for the Gulch and you got pushed back. Yeah, and you know what was interesting about that? Um, I remember that. That's interesting that you remember that. Because it was, it was theater, as they say. Because you came well, in, Mayor, you, you, went down, you went down a row and said, Councilmember, you asked me for this and I did this. Councilmember, you asked for this I and I, you went down the, down the line. So you know what? I remember after that, I, I, some of the biggest lessons I've learned about leadership came during that process. One, I realized that council never knew what it felt like not to have the support of the mayor because it's, 
it needs to be a mutually beneficial relationship. Mm -hmm. And I came in immediately trying to press reset because there were so many erroneous assumptions about even how I came to be mayor. And like, well, um, well, like what? Erroneous assumptions well, about how you came to be mayor? Um, you know, I, I think there were some people who thought maybe I was made out of a kit in a basement somewhere, that I didn't have a brain and that somewhere, somehow, I, I remember I was doing a lot of policy and it was policy that I was coming up with and someone asking someone, who's coming up with all her stuff? And then saying, well, you know, they've got so-and-so working on her stuff. So it was, and that, and that, that's nothing new even when I ran for mayor. It's, you know, people assume, <laughs> I don't know if it's sexism, I don't know what, what it is, that you really can't be smart, can you? It has to be somebody else who's who's. Was that smart. somebody else, Kasim Reed? Did they? In some instances, yeah. How did you handle that? Well, it ticked me off. And I would say it in forms. I said, he wasn't sitting next to me when I graduated from high school at 17. Top 10% of my class. He wasn't next to me when I graduated first in my class. Uh, from the journalism school, magna cum laude at 21. He wasn't next to me when I passed the bar the first time at 24. So why do you now think I can't think or I don't think outside of him? I mean, it infuriated yeah. me. It was an insult to, to me, mm -hmm. to my family, to all of the, the years that I worked hard. Um, and, and I don't think it would have been done to a man. There's more with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in just a moment. When we return, our conversation regarding the mayor's relationship with our city council continues. We'll also talk about how she was vetted as a possible candidate for vice president, the city's spike in violent crimes, and the decision to not seek another term. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Last Thursday, I sat down with Keisha Lance Bottoms to talk about what it's like to be the mayor of a major city and her decision not to run for a second term. It was in her first full-length interview since she announced that decision. We'll rejoin that conversation from the Cascade Springs Nature Preserve in southwest Atlanta. Do you have any regrets about your relationship with city council? Any city council members? No, so, well, I'll go back to what I was saying about the GOAT. But just a couple of things I, I learned. We negotiated what I thought was the most spectacular, innovative deal. It had never been done in the country, much less Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And when I took it to council, I went like, here, here's an amazing deal. And what I realized, I didn't give them any room for input because I had negotiated all the way to the finish line mm -hmm. and they didn't have a chance to put their imprint on it. So that was a big lesson that you gotta let other people feel like they are a part of it too. And that's just a, a leadership lesson mm -hmm. that I, I continue, I hopefully will always take with me, but I sleep well at night. Like I, <laughs> I, I know when I do bad things, mm -hmm. And as it relates to the relationship with council, I know when I do good and, I, and I, know, I know when I'm naughty and I know when I'm nice. 
and um, you know, and I've had this conversation with council members, different ones at different times. If you ever want to be mayor, I've never seen a mayor get to be mayor fighting with the mayor. It's not worked out for anybody. So think about what you're fighting about. And I've also said, I don't have a problem with you disagreeing with me. Just give me a heads up so I can at least try and address your issues. A lot of the issues were played out in the meetings as your profile rose around the nation and the world for that matter. Accusations of you not attending to your mayoral duties here in Atlanta because you're on CNN and MSNBC and and some council members called you out saying well, if you were here more often. And that was ridiculous. It wasn't true. The length of time that I'm sitting down talking to you today is extraordinary. Yes, it is. The vast majority of, of radio and television interviews, if you get five minutes, that's a long time. So this notion that my doing interviews, five minute interviews, maybe twice a day, <laughs> would interfere from the job that I do 60 plus hours a week, plus, plus, plus. I mean, that was ridiculous. And, and that, I think some of it was envy um, because the first opportunity many people had to get on network television, they took it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, and, and, and ignorance. And let me just say this, those interviews were about the presidential election, and I will never regret doing everything that I did and speaking every single word that I said to get Joe Biden elected president. Did you at some point think, what if I am the nominee for vice president? I remember having a walk with my husband one day, and this was when the vet was going on, and he said, do you realize what a big deal this is? I'm like, yeah, I'm being vetted. He's like, no, like, <laughs> do, you, do you recognize what this means? So I, I think he realized what a big deal it was. I think that's this quirky thing about my personality. It didn't seem that extraordinary to me. It's like, oh, well, why would I be vetted for vice president of the United States? <laughs> you, <laughs> you didn't think that that was a big deal. I, I promise you, Rose, it's a weird thing Come about on my person. I'm telling you. Now, it, it resonated Your with- footsteps away from possibly being president of the United States. It resonated with me later, and sometimes that happens. I want to shift for a moment. Um, Eight-year-old Sequoia Turner. Mm -hmm. You talked about black girl magic the night you were elected. And you think about someone like Sequoia Turner who mm -hmm. will never get to experience what that could be. And I think about Kennedy Maxey. Mm -hmm. I think about Diamond Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it hurts. Black girls yeah. taken yeah. by violence, yep. by guns. Yep. And this crime wave, this crime spike that Atlanta's experiencing, yeah. and so much of it being targeted at you, what are you gonna do about it? You're not doing anything about it. Mm -hmm. You've always talked about, as a mother of, of, of black boys. Yeah. I have a daughter. You have a daughter. Was that criticism unfair it's in terms un of the crime spike? It's understandable. Um, you know, what fairness, you know, it comes with the territory. It's understandable. And I'd say is, if I could stop it, do you not think that I would? I have four children, three boys, one girl. Mm -hmm. And when my 
19-year-old son walks out the door, I plead the blood of Jesus over him. Because I have an 18-year-old nephew who walked out the door and didn't make it back home. And I, I, I can't protect my son. And, and what I say to so many people who are outraged about crime, whether it's in Buckhead, like, do you not think we care about crime in Southwest Atlanta? Statistically, my son is more likely to be the victim of gun violence than me and any number of other people. So whether I am mayor, I will always care about safety in this city. And if I could stop it, I would. And I am doing every single thing that I know to do. Our police department's doing everything that they know to do. It's the reason I brought in this advisory committee. Like, okay, are we so far into this? Are we so far in, into the, the weeds of this crime fighting that we can't see what else needs to be done? That's why I've asked this advisory committee to take a look at what we're doing. Tell us if we're missing something. But what people have to recognize is if this were just an Atlanta problem, then I think you very well could place blame on me personally. You talked about the fact that the nation's gun laws you thought were problematic. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp uh, called that ridiculous. Some said, is this just an excuse or is it a reasonable explanation? I think there's so many things playing into violence. I think our nation's gun laws are a part of it. I think people are emerging from COVID, not just physically battered and bruised, but mentally and emotionally battered and bruised. People don't. People, especially people of color, went into COVID damaged in so many ways anyway. Mm -hmm. Because there are discussions about our communities and our kids and dealing and living with post-traumatic stress syndrome and not getting the mental and behavioral health assistance that they need. That was before COVID. And then you look at the country and you look at communities of color, how hard we were hit Family members were dying. People were out of work. Kids just stopped going to school. I mean, it's a lot. It's a, it was a lot for me. You contracted the virus. Yeah. And I went into it healthy and whole last year. And I think this is what you're seeing playing out in our street. Fuses are short. Life is uncertain. You add what we were seeing um, spewed from the podium in the White House, none of us had ever experienced that before. You talked about the vet. This is something I talked about in my interview with the president during my vet interview. One of the biggest challenges that I saw was this mental health piece and the need to address it. And, and a fellow mayor, Mayor Hancock of Denver, describes it as what he believes is our, will be our next pandemic. I have a text thread, I have multiple mayor's text threads, about 20 of us on one thread. And we're constantly comparing notes with what we're seeing in our communities. And the mental health piece is a big part of it. Everything that we've talked about so far, everything that you experienced in those first few years, leading up to now, mm -hmm. did this, affect your mental health at all? Oh, well, it definitely did. Oh, definitely. There were, were times where I got very low. You know, I think the First Lady may have called it low-key depression. First Lady Obama described it as that just the day before, I'd almost used those same words. And again, I, I dare not complain. I, I have a good life. And it was stressful for me. And, and it was the 
pandemic and watching people die and it was what we saw happen last summer and it was it was a heavy burden for a lot of people. At this point then are we on this path of you thinking about maybe I don't want to return for another term? You know, I, in my heart, and I, I can't tell you what it, I can't tell you what I felt. My first year, I didn't think I would run again. Why? I don't know why. There has to be, there was, there's nothing that happened. It was not a moment. I just didn't, and I thought, well, this is an odd feeling. Did you tell anybody? Uh, I'm, I'm sure I said it to my husband. Year one, mm -hmm. you're already thinking about maybe not a second term. Yeah, and I thought I was crazy for feeling that way. You said in your press conference, your love for this city was planted well before you even formed in the womb of your mother. You love this city. Mm -hmm. You've always said that. You always talk about the SWATs. Do you feel like you're abandoning this city by not seeking another term? That's what made me not say it sooner. This feeling like I was letting Atlanta down. And I remember one day thinking, you are not God. How dare you think that Atlanta only rises and falls with you? Because there's a sort of an arrogance in that to think that I'm the only one that can do it. I'm the only one that can lead Atlanta. And when I release that, um, I just, begin to get comfortable with the idea of saying it aloud because I was still running. I was still in it. And I remember someone on my team saying, I don't, I don't see that fire in you that I saw when you ran the last time. Where is it? So there was no incident. There was nothing that made you say one day, I'm not going to run. This has just been building up since year one and you made the decision. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. I, um, I talked about it so much and I said this at the press conference. My husband was like, I'm not talking about this with you anymore. Because I would go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he said, just make a decision. But all these things you just talked about, am I letting the city down? How will people feel? Will they think that I quit? Mm -hmm. All these things. And there was not a single moment. There was not one thing. And I think, in fact, I polled and my poll numbers were bad, I would have stayed in. If I couldn't raise the money, I would have stayed in because then I would have felt I had a point to prove. Mm -hmm. But when I polled and I saw my approval ratings were over, you know, close to 70%. And then the president hosted the fundraiser and one fundraiser, I raised almost $530,000 or more. And all these things still lined up and I still didn't feel in my heart that I should run again. I wish that I could articulate it. It's one of these things, Rose, and you heard me, I know you've heard me talk about before when I made the decision to run for mayor. I know when I know. And I kept saying that to my husband, it's just not clear to me what I should do. And I remember he gave me the best example, and it was this physical demonstration. And he was standing in the doorway. And he said, as long as I'm standing here, he said, my only option is what I see here. Mm -hmm. 
He said, but when I walk through this doorway, I can go this way, I can go that way, I can go that way. He said, you're not going to know what else life has in store if you just stay paralyzed here. I think I've read not since World War II. Has anybody not run for mayor again? with the exception of Mayor Jackson, Mm -hmm. who had come back for a third term. So there was that too, like who who doesn't run for mayor of Of Atlanta Atlanta again? (laughs) Everybody wants to be the mayor. Every black child in Atlanta growing up wants to be the mayor. (laughs) Who gets the job and then says, I'm not doing it again? You did. So we've talked a lot about this journey to being mayor. But now we're gonna go back and look at some of your roots here. We're gonna we're gonna hit the a side of town that you should know very well. Yeah. Excited about that? I am. I've got a couple of sides of town I, I need to show you. <laughs> Give you my uh, Atlanta tour. All right, let's go. After leaving the Cascade Springs Nature Preserve, we head to the Southwest Atlanta neighborhood where Mayor Bottom spent a lot of time in her youth. She still lives nearby, and as we drive through the neighborhood that's changing, like so many historic Atlanta neighborhoods, we arrive at a familiar place, the house Bottom's grandparents built in 1953. My grandmother dropped out of high school in the 11th grade to care for a sick sister because that's the type of person she yeah. was. And my grandfather, I don't even think finished eighth grade. Um, and they just worked so hard. I never knew them not to have. Every week we would come over here, it was like the movie Soul Food for Sunday dinner. Yeah. My grandma <laughs> made dinner before she, well she went grocery shopping, she'd pick up various items. My granddaddy would go and get her, the rest of her things on Saturday. She would either pick her collards. You don't know anything about that. I know, you know about picking collards <laughs> and snapping peas. And snapping peas, <laughs> depending on what we were going to have. On Saturday night, while she talked on the telephone to her church members, her choir members. And on Sunday morning, she would make a full breakfast and dinner. Mm-hmm. It was done before yeah. we went to church. Yeah. The neighborhood has fallen into disrepair, but it's interesting watching this revitalization of the neighborhood, the thing that saddens me is that so many families who built this neighborhood are no longer here to enjoy what it's becoming again. But that's a lot of neighborhoods in Atlanta. A lot of neighborhoods across the country. You feel you've done enough in this time in trying to preserve some of these neighborhoods for the people who are legacy residents? I believe we have done more than any administration has in recent history, but it's still not enough. And I told you prior to our administration coming in, we weren't even all sitting at the same table talking. But the good thing, we set some very ambitious goals, including 20,000 affordable housing units uh, by the year 2026 preserved and or created. We're already, I believe, above 6,000. So we're getting there. It's just still so much more to be done. How much of your decision was rooted in what you wanted to do with your family? You have four kids, some little ones too. Yeah. That factor in your decision also? Rose, I think the last year has had all of us re-examining life. I mean, life is a relay race. It's it's not for everybody to accomplish a certain dream. There's always a finite amount of time for the mayor of Atlanta, whether it's four years or eight years. Is there an issue or something that you wanted then to accomplish in your first term, in these first four years, that you're not gonna be able to do? And if so, is it unfortunate or is it regrettable? I think the, the one thing that I wish that we could have completed was the transformation of the jail. But I always knew that was not a one-term project mm-hmm. because it's such a massive transformation. Mm-hmm. 
So we have begun the, the building blocks of that. I, I am concerned that the trend now is moving from thoughtful social justice reform to as we are dealing with crime, people want to swing back the other way and lock mm -hmm. everybody back up. Mm -hmm. So that concerns me. I do hope that the next mayor will continue to be thoughtful about what the opportunities are for us to address those systemic issues in this physical place. So I wish that we had gotten further with that, but we've still gotten pretty far. We've repurposed a lot of our correction staff already. We've laid the groundwork and when you pass the baton, somebody else has to finish running that race. During this time and during those tough times and those challenging times as mayor, who's your inner circle? Who do you talk to? Who do you go to? To either yell or scream or vent? Well, my husband gets it <laughs> all day, every day. Um, you know, I'm fortunate in, in that regard to have somebody, a, a partner that I can share my anger, sadness, and he's very thoughtful. So that helps a lot. And, and then I have, a, I have a trusted team around me who I work with. And then I'm really fortunate that I have a really good group of friends. And are they honest with you in terms oh. of when maybe they don't agree? The short answer is yes. But my truth teller also, I have truth tellers in my family. Who are the truth tellers? All of them. I come from a very opinionated group of people who don't hide. and. And I say, if you want me to know something, tell my mama, because she's going to deliver every message. Yeah. And she, she speaks truth to me. My husband speaks truth to me. My kids do. When you are mayor and when you hold a, a position of prestige and power, a lot of times people don't, are afraid to tell you bad news or they won't, they won't tell you things that they think you don't want to hear and that's very dangerous. Can you tell me one of those times when they told you something that you didn't want to hear? Oh gosh, I can think of many times. Um, Rodney Bryant tells me things I want to hear a lot. The police chief? The police chief. Mm -hmm. There are multiple things. How do you I'll deal with criticism? With criticism? Mm -hmm. That doesn't bother me. I won't. No, let me not be, let me not, yeah. not tell the truth on that. I can't say it doesn't bother me, but I can take it. But when I, it gets too toxic for me, I know how to turn it off. One critique that, you know, I've heard I don't communicate with people. I communicate with a lot of people. I may not communicate, uh, I don't communicate with people who I think are liars and, and mean me harm. <laughs> I may not communicate with them. As my mother always says, said, I know self be true. I try and really look inward. You know, I know my flaws better than anybody. There are flaws that I don't like about myself and I wish... Like what? Uh, when I am hurt, by someone, not when someone says something bad, when someone I care about hurts me, I will shut them off. You hold grudges? I remember. I remember, I won't say I, is that a grudge? I forgive, but I remember. Do you apologize when you are wrong or have been wrong? I try, when I think that I was wrong, yeah. <laughs> when I believe that I was wrong, yes. This is something that really irritates my husband. I was like, I'm sorry, I was wrong. And, and his irritation, I'm sure, is shared by many other people. It's like, yeah, but you were so convinced you were right. Have you apologized to anyone within your administration or had, have you had to have this conversation of, you know, maybe I misspoke, maybe I, it was a mistake. 
Have you had any of those conversations with anyone in your administration? Yeah, I have. And I also try and proactively even say to the team around me, because this is a highly stressful job, like you can't take it personally. So if I am really stressed and I'm not talking that day or I'm snappy, like it's not about you, because if it's about you, I'll tell you it's about you. Let me go there with you as we prepare to wrap up. When you are stressed, and you need to balance work and life. How do you do that? See, well, I can go to the gym and play ball or you. Well, something I've done during the pandemic, which I was not making enough time for, I bought a Peloton, great stress release. And I used to just lament that I couldn't run anymore because I had a knee injury. So since I couldn't run, I wasn't gonna do anything. Well, now I walk three and a half to four miles a day. So it takes me a little longer than when I used to run, but I'm just so grateful to be able to go out and breathe fresh air. And I often think of people in communities that don't feel as safe and they, uh, you know, don't have the luxury of walking out their door and, and being safe walking. So just, you know, gratitude and, and what I have and, and not focusing on what I don't have. In these next seven months that are left in your term, relief, some regret, a little bit of both? Relief. Um, relief that I have done the best that I could do. And relief that I'm walking out with my head held high and that I am leaving on my terms and everybody doesn't get to do that and I'm, I'm grateful for that. I articulated this at the press conference, you know, voters get to decide every four years. People don't often think about a candidate's decision every four years and um, I've never been ordinary, ever. In this house, my, I remember my daddy would bring me over and my grandmother would say, now, you tell Keisha, I don't feel like doing a whole bunch of talking and answering a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> and I would dress up and I would put on all her jewelry and her makeup and I would put shows on for her. And Miss Murray next door used to say to my grandmother, I don't know what that girl's gonna be, but she gonna be something. When we started this conversation, and we talked about the black girl magic and mm -hmm. the reference that you made on election night, is that black girl magic still there for you and whatever your next chapter is gonna be? Oh, the magic never goes away, Rose. Well, it's who we are. It never goes away. And again, I think about my grandparents. These were ordinary people by the world's standards who made such an extraordinary imprint in their children and their grandchildren and their community. Do you think about your legacy? I really don't. To the extent that I think about it, Will anyone remember a mayor who was there for four years? But, you know, we all have a finite amount of time on earth. So I, I think about it in that way. Um, like, well, you know, when you are mayor four years, will anybody remember that? But that's not enough to make me stay for eight so somebody will remember my name. But I love this city, and it, it really has been such an extraordinary honor to be the mayor of this city. You know, beyond every expectation that my ancestors ever had, that's, it's incredible. Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, Madam Mayor, thank you so much for spending this time with us. Thank you, Rose. I'm, I'm a 
have to take you around the real Atlanta. You only know the shiny parts of the city. Let me <laughs> let me show you some places. You gonna cook? You gonna cook some oh, macaroni and cheese? Absolutely. You just stir it up. <laughs> it's gonna be real good. That's Atlanta Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms in conversation with me last Thursday in her first full-length interview since she announced the decision not to run for a second term. And you can find more about the interview online at wabe.org. And be sure to check out a special television broadcast of the interview with Mayor Bottoms tonight at 8 p.m. on ATL PBA. That's Channel 30 on most TV providers. That's it for this special edition of Closer Look. Production assistance provided by our director of TV and radio, John Haas. Our audio engineer, Kevin Rinker. Closer Look producer, LaShawn Hudson. A special thanks to our entire ATL PBA colleagues, as well as Public Broadcasting Atlanta's digital department. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.